I'm Arthur Snell, and this is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to the last of our New Year specials as we gear up for a new season, which is coming soon. Today, we go behind the headlines on the unquestioned Man of the Year of 2022. Of course, you know I'm talking about Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We know that the truth is on our side, though, so it means that we will come because it's our land and it's our people. Thanks for joining me for another Doomsday Watch special, a conversation with author and journalist Stephen Derricks. Written alongside Marina Shelkonova, his book, Zelensky, Ukraine's President and His Country, is one of the first biographies to chart the remarkable rise of Ukraine's president, from comedian to war leader. And stay tuned at the end to hear how you can gain early access to a new series of Doomsday Watch, coming soon. Before that, who is the real Zelensky? Let's find out. Stephen, welcome. Hello. It almost goes without saying that Zelensky is the man of the year. He's been a heroic war leader. People uh, compare him to Winston Churchill and to other figures throughout uh, history. But of course, his backstory is so unexpected of a comedian. He was involved with light entertainment. He wasn't somebody who you would expect to reach this point. So before we really go into all of that, what was your first brush with Zelensky? How did you come to be aware of him? I was actually covering his election campaign in 2019. And I remember that I was on the road doing a reportage about, I think, extensive chicken farming <laughs> somewhere somewhere on the road in Ukraine. We were listening to the epic debate that he had with uh, the then president, Poroshenko, which was held in a stadium. Yeah. Um, and here was this comic who was performing in, in, in front of uh, thousands of people uh, delivering his speeches in Ukrainian, a language with, which he, he, he could not speak at that moment. So I actually learned it, uh, especially for his election campaign. So that was the first time I really kind of experienced him live. Yeah. And later on, I saw him during his election night playing ping pong with journalists and then delivering his uh, victory speech after he had won the second round of the election with 73% of the vote. We go back to his previous role as a as a man playing the Ukrainian president and in that story in that tv show it begins with a i think he's a history teacher who kind of one day just loses his shit goes off in his big rant about the corruption and and the kind of cynicism of Ukrainian politics and then that goes viral and it leads to him running a, a campaign um how much like that was Zelensky's own decision. So how random was it that he decided to run for president? Well, actually, the big question is, is whether he had ha, has planned everything in advance. So that's actually a, a question Marina and I haven't answered. Uh, it's shrouded in mystery, I'm afraid. But it's, it's a very remarkable story that he actually became the man who he played, an outsider coming out of nowhere, winning the election, and then kind of uh, tries to, to, to change everything in Ukraine. Yeah. And before the war, and obviously we need to talk about the war, but coming to that, but before the war and after his election, there were those who said that this guy Zelensky is just the tool of other forces within his country. And and particularly one name 
came up repeatedly, uh, Ihor Kolomoisky, who's a, a major Ukrainian oligarch. Could you say a bit about him and his relationship with Zelensky? Well, Zelensky has had a, a relationship, relationships with a lot of people in, in, in the political elite of Ukraine and had dealings with oligarchs because he was a very, very famous actor. Uh, he was even uh, at some point uh, invited by uh, the then President Yanukovych, who asked him to stop uh, criticizing the government in his shows. Uh, and he also had dealings with Igor Kolomoisky because Igor Kolomoisky was uh, heading the television company, the broadcasting company, which actually paid Zelensky to do his uh, to do his shows and his programs. Yeah. So that that there was a relationship between the two men that was, uh, uh, in a way, logical. Um, you could say I think that history has showed that after his election, he has done absolutely nothing in the interest of Kolomoisky, and he has shown that he was not Kolomoisky's man, but his own man. Yeah. So let's go back, if we can, to the start. Most people have now become aware that Zelensky grew up speaking Russian and he comes from a Jewish background. Can you say a bit more about his, his sort of early years and, and his family? Like a lot has been made about his Jewish background. Um, I don't actually think it's so. It, it was terribly important for him. I think the most important thing about uh, Zelensky's background is he's from, from uh, a family of... Um, Soviet intelligentsia, so both his mother and father yeah. had studied, and that he's from a region which is originally Russian-speaking. So he, he, uh, you could say that he always lived in the Russian world, the, the Ruski Mir, as, as mm. you say in Russian, that he actually wanted to study in Moscow and to become a diplomat. And, of course, he didn't have the money to bribe the right people to get into the prestigious Mgimo, that's the university for Russian diplomats. Otherwise, he might have become a colleague of uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs. It's a, such an extraordinary kind of uh, sliding doors moment, that, isn't it? Yes. And, and after that, he wanted to start a career in Moscow as an actor. He wanted to go to acting school in Moscow. He spent a lot of time there. Uh, actually, uh, walking the the halls of the of the great uh, in the Russian institutions and dreaming about becoming a famous Russian actor. Yeah, Russia was the center of gravity for a long time. When did that start to change? Because obviously, by the time of his political campaign, he was already whilst he he was not known as a politician. He will he was widely known in Ukraine as an actor, as a comedian. So, at what point did his sphere of emphasis shift back to, to the country of his birth? I think it was a bit of a shock for him. It all happened in 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimea and started the war in the, in the Donbass. Let's not forget that he was an extremely uh, popular figure in Russia as well. In 2012, I believe he still presented uh, the New Year's show, which is a very big event on Russian television. So he was one of the most uh, popular people in Russia as well as an actor, as a, as a comedian. But then in 2014, everything changed when uh, Putin resorted to violence and he had to make a choice. And he decided that his Ukrainian background is, is more important than his Russian business interests. So he, he squarely uh, declared himself to be uh, for Ukraine. He supported the Ukrainian forces. Um, he performed uh, on the front line. He uh, collected money for the Ukrainian army. Um, which led to a big scandal in Russia and actually finished off his Russian business. I even believe that the, uh, the prosecution started uh, uh, to investigate him in Russia. So in the end, of course, he was living in this Russian cultural world, but he felt himself uh, a Ukrainian, not a Russian. Yeah. 
And what's so interesting about that is that you describe the actions of someone like Volodymyr Zelensky, who, as you say, had a had a big career ahead of him potentially in Russia, uh, seeing that as a turning point in his life. Is it fair to say that that was similar for many Ukrainians? Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, especially for people in the east uh, and in the south, the Russian-speaking regions. And uh, I believe that when Putin forced the hand of the Ukrainians and actually uh, made them make their choice, a lot of people actually chose for Ukraine, uh, not only in the in the regions where Ukrainian is spoken, but also in other regions like the city like Odessa in the south, which is completely uh, Russian-speaking has its uh, very own identity. Uh, when I was there in 2019, people say we will never want, we will never become Russia, and we will resist if they invade. So um, I think that Putin firmly overplayed his hand in 2014 um, by provoking this war, uh, by annexing Ukraine and provoking this war in the Donbas, and actually made people like Volodymyr Zelensky choose, and they chose for Ukraine, not for, not for Russia. If we go forward to his time as president, but before the war, of course, for most people outside Ukraine, uh, Zelensky only sort of appeared in, in, in the kind of global sensibility after the events of the 24th of, of February. But he had a very turbulent period as president even before that. And of course, Zelensky's confrontations with what he saw as as a sort of corrupt media elite inside his own country, led to him being accused by some as just another autocrat seeking to control the media. Can you explain a bit of that story for those who are not familiar with it? Well, in defense of, of Zelensky, I think we have to conclude that he, he, he didn't become president to just fill his pockets like a lot of his predecessors. Yeah. Like Mr. Yanukovych. So this is a man who has uh, a real ideals. This is a man who really wants to change Ukraine. And of course, the paramount uh, problem in Ukraine is rampant corruption, which, which degrades the whole society, which permeates uh, every sphere of life. He was in a very good starting position to do something about that because he, he won the presidential election and he then uh, went on to win the parliamentary elections uh, and, and got a, a majority in the Rada, the, the Ukrainian parliament. Yes. So he actually had uh, full democratic powers to enforce whatever legislation uh, he wanted. But he soon ran into a, a lot of problems because corruption is so uh, so paramount in Ukraine that even uh, his own parliamentarians were not voting for the laws that he wanted to pass. So <laughs> people from his own party, servants of the people, uh, were actually voting in the interests of the oligarchs. Yeah. And that was followed by, by another crisis when the Constitutional Court of Ukraine actually declared that the register that uh, had been drawn up for civil servants in which you have to uh, declare uh, all your income was actually a violation of uh, privacy regulations in U Ukraine and had to be uh, taken offline. So the, the, the biggest instrument in combating corruption was actually taken offline by decision of a corrupt uh, constitutional court. So he actually started uh, to battle this constitutional court. He wanted to get the judges fired, which is, of course, uh, against the rules of a democratic society. <laughs> um, 
in the end, he started to do more and more uh, through an institution which uh, was actually dormant before the war, but then afterwards became more important, the Security Council of Ukraine, Defense and Security Council of Ukraine, uh, which started to take a lot of important decisions. So actually, it was uh, he started to bypass uh, the Rada, the parliament. He started to take decisions on his own. He's actually starting to govern Ukraine as some kind of almost uh, military governor uh, as Ukraine was already in some kind of state of war, which was criticized by many uh, in the West because uh, at the time many thought that maybe his intentions were good, but the methods he was trying to to make this work were actually causing more damage than doing good. And what was your conclusion on on that period? Because it was basically an undemocratic approach but the argument would be that that he was his hand was forced by these kind of structural challenges within Ukraine society. Yeah, but he's, he's just not a man who uh, was going to accept defeat, as we've seen uh, in the last year. So this is a man who uh, who takes on the fights. That was exactly what he was doing with the oligarchs. Uh, but I think he was actually in a lot of trouble just before the war. Uh, I'm not sure that he would have been re-elected if not for Putin's invasion. I think in many ways uh, he was actually on a road which would, would have led him to failure. Because in the end, I think the, the agenda that he had set for himself was too ambitious because he cannot change a country like Ukraine uh, in one presidential term. I, I would argue that he was in big trouble. Yeah. So there are two aspects to his foreign policy before the war that seem worth talking about. One is, of course, his attempts to be a peacemaker. He was perhaps seen in some Western capitals as too dovish in his approach to Vladimir Putin. And the other is the extraordinary events uh, concerning Donald Trump. So should we talk first about Putin? What was his relationship with Putin before the the invasion? Well, I'm sure that he actually was uh, on events where Putin was also a guest because he was that famous. I'm not sure that they had any personal relationship. What we know is that one of his major uh, promises during his election campaign was that he was the man who was going to bring peace to Ukraine and end the war. And he really tried to do that, but actually this was almost the the same kind of impossible task he had set for himself as uh, getting rid of corruption in Ukraine, because to make peace, you need two parties who want peace. And and, and, uh, Russia definitely was not prepared to make any major concessions or to get out of uh, the Donbass or to return Crimea. So yes, Zelensky wanted to make peace, but I don't think he had a very clear idea how this was to come about. And and most definitely he didn't have the, the, the political room to make any major concessions like saying, okay, Crimea is yours. You say he didn't have the political room. Do you think that was in his mind that, that there had to be some kind of a route to peace through those concessions? Well, we're not really, he's always been very unclear about what concessions he was prepared to make. I, I, I think he saw it more like, look, I am a man from the Russian-speaking world. Uh, I know the Donbass people. I know they also want to be Ukrainian, and I will convince them that they can come back to the motherland, yeah. something like that. Uh, he was actually a ve- the man to uh, kind of... Uh, build bridges between the East and the West because he is himself from the yeah. South, the Southeast. I think he was uh, the figure who could do it. But um, yeah, again, uh, this also depended on Putin wanting to make peace and, and that, that was not the case. 
And was he then ultimately being rather naive to think that the sort of personal cultural connection that he might have with with Russian speaking people would be enough to, you know, change the mind of someone like Vladimir Putin? Um, yes, you might say that. On the other hand, I think that nobody expected that the real agenda of, of Putin would be the, the uh, annihilation of Ukraine. Uh, yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to talk about before we actually talk about him as a wartime president was the, the bizarre uh, involvement that he had, not by his own choice, of course, mm -hmm. in Donald Trump's impeachment. Mm -hmm. um, again, for, for those that may, whose memories may be a bit fuzzy, perhaps you could uh, remind our listeners how, how that situation unfolded. Well, that's a very complicated story because um, actually it's about a conspiracy theory. President Trump uh, firmly believed in that uh, uh, Joe Biden as a vice president somehow used his influence in Ukraine to block investigations into his son, Hunter Biden, who was then uh, on the board of a gas company, Burisma. Yeah. Trump called Zelensky uh, to ask him to look into that, which in itself would not have been a real problem. But uh, after a, a few months, a scandal broke in the United States because uh, uh, Trump was not only asking for a favor, he also was withholding military aid to put pressure on Ukraine. So there was an investigation with, which led to the impeachment procedure against Trump. And in the course of that, a transcript of this phone call was uh, published uh, in which, well, he made it quite a bad impression in trying to kiss up to Trump. Of course, he never expected that this would go on the public record. So, <laughs> so that was a scandal, uh, not only in the United States, but it was also a bit of a scandal in Ukraine because everybody was thinking, oh, is, is this the man who is the sovereign leader of our country, or is this the servant of, uh, <laughs> of the United States? So that's, that, that's yeah. how it came about a bit. And of course, the other aspect of that story, with hindsight, the idea that Trump was trying to restrict support, defense support to Ukraine, a country that only two, two years later would be subjected to a, to a mass invasion, uh, it makes us think, had Trump been president, what would have happened in 2022 when the Russians did invade? Yeah, so why did uh, Putin not invade Ukraine when Trump was still president? Actually, he missed the chance there, I think. Yeah. If it were not for, for Joe Biden, I think uh, things would have gone uh, terribly, terribly wrong for Ukraine. Yeah, totally agree. Your book has a fascinating account of the lead up to the war and the dialogue that was going on between Zelensky and other Western leaders, particularly President Biden. And one of the things that's interesting about that is actually that there was quite a lot of tension. You know, Zelensky now is unquestionably one of the, the top allies of President Biden, but also of, of you know, other key Western leaders such as whoever is currently Prime Minister of Britain this week, or um, <laughs> Emmanuel Macron and, and, and so on. But uh, in, in the run-up to the invasion, there seemed to be a reluctance in Kyiv to believe that this was going to happen. What, what was your conclusion on, on that question? Well, I think there are two things I think important to keep in mind. First is that the uh, the West, United States and the West, and Britain, of course, have uh, a few years back already changed their 
policy about secrecy and uh, talking about Russian operations. I think for a long time now, uh, both Washington and London and uh, even The Hague here we are trying to kind of um, do something about uh, secret Russian operations by actually openly talking about them. Yeah. What, uh, um, as we've seen, for instance, when uh, four uh, spies were actually arrested close to the, uh, in The Hague, uh, trying to hack into the Wi-Fi system of the Organization Against uh, Chemical Weapons. Indeed. Uh, which was followed by a press conference in which uh, a lot of detail was actually made public about what, you know, documents, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that Joe Biden was following the same tactics by kind of spoiling the whole Russian operation by uh, saying in advance, look, they are going to invade, they're going to do this on this and this day. We actually know that Putin postponed the whole operation because he didn't like it that the Americans said, well, it's going to be February the 16th. So they actually postponed it for eight days. So this was all part of an attempt to kind of uh, preempt uh, a Russian operation and kind of spoil Putin's war b- before he even could start. On the other hand, I think Zelensky, until the very, very last moment, was gambling on the fact that maybe Russia wouldn't do it. Uh, mm. And therefore, he didn't mobilize. Therefore, Ukraine was not fully prepared when the invasion, which was actually, you know, it, it, was, it was announced. We all knew that it was going to happen. Uh, I think Zelensky in the end thought, well, if I mobilize, there will be a panic. It will be very bad for uh, the economy of Ukraine. He was also afraid that he might provoke Russia, give them an excuse by mobilizing. Yeah. Which are all valid arguments. But in the end, when the invasion came, Ukraine was not fully prepared. And uh, actually, Kiev almost fell. And Zelensky was almost killed by Spetsnaz uh, parachuting into to the Ukrainian capital. If we talk about that now, the, the moment of the invasion, there's a line which, you know, will be repeated for years to come. And will no doubt when they make the movie, this will be one of the key lines. And this is Zelensky to Biden. I need ammunition, not a ride. Uh, when he was offered, uh, you know, an escape route out of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so Zelensky clearly made some errors and, and not mobilizing, not fully preparing Kiev. And he was saved probably by a combination of Russian military incompetence and, of course, the the heroic actions of his own forces, particularly, I believe, at Hostomel, where the um, Spetsnaz tried to make a landing. But from your study of the man, do you think we could have foreseen his kind of Churchillian transformation, that that was always a side to his character? Or is it really a case of the circumstances forced him into this kind of status that he now has? Well, I think that everybody just underestimated him. Yeah. But if you actually study the man and you see his career, you can you can see that he was always a leader. So he was always the man who uh, was in charge, bossing the others around. He was uh, a man who was prepared to work incredibly hard to uh, gain success. Uh, he's a man who takes a direct line to uh, to achieve his goals. He's not a softy. He's never been a softy. Uh, I think that we can add to that, that he has shown that he's also a man of bravery uh, because he took uh, an incredible risk by staying. And he said, OK, I don't I, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And that's actually on the second day of the war, he came out uh, uh, of his presidential palace and there was still fighting going on in Kiev. Yeah. Uh, and he came out to record uh, record a video in which I, I believe is the, the true Chichilian moment when he said, we are here. The president is here, President Tut, he said, to the whole Ukrainian population. So I'm not going to run. 
as a war leader, there's no doubt that his his talent as a communicator, both internally but around the world, is unquestioned. As you say, you know, walking. I remember that video. You know, I think it was even filmed on a smartphone. It was so kind of visceral. And there he was on the streets of a city that was at war. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is at the end of a. 20 meter table, apparently terrified of COVID. So that that contrast was incredible. But is he significant as a war leader in a kind of strategic and tactical sense? Does he does he sit with his generals and make decisions about operations? Is he doing that? Or is his focus on this kind of communication and inspiration? I think it's very difficult to say if he's actually uh, trying to lead the war. He's saying that he doesn't like to interfere with the work of the generals. He's intelligent enough to realize that he's not a master strategist and that uh, General Zaluzhny should do the the, the military planning. Um, But he is running a very centralized government in which the people that were his confidants uh, during uh, before the war have become even more powerful. And um, we've seen that uh, the the, the tendency that he had, that is to fire people uh, if, if he doesn't like them, has continued actually during the war. Yeah. And in that regard, we can criticise the lack of mobilisation and the lack of preparation, and we can lionise the heroism of Ukraine's armed forces, both in defending, but then increasingly turning the tide and expanding the territory under their control, pushing back the Russian troops. Can um, Zelensky take the credit for that? Or is that down to the, the commanders and the individual inspiration of, of individual forces I think you can claim a lot of the of the responsibility for keeping Ukraine alive if it weren't for him I think Ukraine would have already lost the war uh, one of the essential elements of this war is the military support that Ukraine is getting from the West uh, which is uh, ongoing and is actually escalating or increasing more and more advanced weapon systems are being transferred to Ukrainian armed forces. And I think if it weren't for Zelensky, this would have never would have happened. So this is a man who not only makes uh, great war speeches, this is also a man who speaks to world leaders and convinces them that they should uh, help Ukraine and continue to help Ukraine. And this is incredibly important and is actually the reason that Ukraine is still alive and actually uh, has a good chance of winning the war now. Picking up on that last point there, Ukraine has a good chance of winning the war. But of course, you can never underestimate uh, Russia's determination, its willingness to throw away its own people, uh, you know, the mobilization and and conscription of, of young men, often from outer regions of Russia, far from Moscow. What do you think is the likely trajectory of this war? And how does that affect Zelensky's own political fortunes? Putin has already set the economy on a war footing or has made um, uh, the first steps to do that. Uh, He will uh, continue to do so. Probably Russia will close the borders because we've seen that a lot of men have fled uh, the mobilization, which was announced in September. So uh, I'm afraid that uh, Putin is going for all-out war, for total war, uh, with a huge mobilization of forces in an attempt to overpower Ukraine, who, of course, has less resources. Um, whether that would be enough to win the war, I'm not sure, because uh, what we see now is um, just an absolute massacre of Russian soldiers who are woefully unprepared, don't have the, the, the advanced weapon systems. So uh, uh, clearly Ukraine has the upper hand 
uh, as things stand now. Whether that will change if Putin really mobilizes two million men and marches on Kiev, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, one, one of the things that will be crucial is whether the West will be willing to go all the way with Ukraine and, and continue supporting the country. Yeah, and how that links with the economic crisis as certainly hitting the UK, but I believe other parts of Europe as well, governments losing their enthusiasm and willingness to support Ukraine, I think is the, the, one of the big questions of this coming year. Yeah, sure. We've all seen the propaganda videos of Russian uh, channels uh, showing uh, uh, Europe Europeans sitting in, in cold apartments <laughs> without any gas. So that's clearly what Putin is gambling for, is that in the end, uh, some kind of war fatigue will set in. Yeah. Of course, Putin didn't think about global warming and the fact that it's never been warmer in January in, in Western Europe. But I guess, uh, you know, that's that's a strange kind of consolation. Well, in many respects, I think that Putin is on the wrong side of history and he hasn't realized it yet. Yeah, definitely. Um, Zelensky himself, if I'm not wrong, his presidential term finishes in, in 2024. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So often a country at war would, would postpone elections. Do you think that will happen with him? Let's, let's say the war continues uh, as it is continuing now. I don't see how he can hold elections. I think... That would not be democratic, but um, uh, he has a good chance to uh, to be reelected for sure, and it, which is uh, which is kind of interesting because usually in in Ukrainian traditions, presidents only serve one term and then they're voted out of office. Yeah, there are of course uh, again without overdoing the analogy to Churchill. Ch Ch Churchill famously, you know, won the war and then lost the election. So uh, I suppose we shouldn't assume that that Zelensky would necessarily do that, although it would be easy to believe that he could win. Yeah, actually, a colleague of mine wrote an interesting ar article in our paper about the oligarchs, which are uh, Ukrainian oligarchs, which are now in a very difficult position, but because a lot of their assets uh, are being destroyed by the war. So uh, the Akhmetovs and the Kolomoyskis, and they've all lost billions. Uh, their factories have been bombed. Uh, they've lost a lot, a lot of money. Uh, so actually, uh, what could happen in a positive scenario is that actually Zelensky will be in an excellent position to once and for all get rid of the oligarchs and do what he promised to do, yeah. to turn Ukraine into a less corrupt, more modern European nation. And maybe uh, the aftermath of this war will actually provide him with the opportunity to do uh, just that. And certainly the experience of a country fighting a total war, you know, it, it's easy to see how that would undermine a lot of these kind of cynical established interests in a way that almost no other event would. Exactly. And, and actually, if, the, if there's one thing that this war is doing is uniting Ukraine and defining Ukraine as a nation, what is happening is actually the exact opposite of what Putin wants. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I would encourage listeners to, to get your book, Zelensky, Ukraine's President and His Country. It, it's a great book, but it, it's also it's very concise. It's an easy read, something that everyone should be interested in picking up. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you recall, some news on the upcoming series of Doomsday Watch. We've been busy behind the scenes on an exciting new project coming very soon to a podcast player near you. If you'd like to join our loyal band and support us in making Doomsday Watch, and a big thank you to those who already do, plus gain early access to coming episodes and find all of our existing bonus content, search Patreon Doomsday Watch now. 
before it's too late.